0: Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast ministry of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. We are back in our series in the Gospel of John titled, Whom Do You Believe? Today, Pastor Roy will be sharing a message from John chapter 9. The title of today's message is, A Changed Life. Open up your Bibles and join us as we look at the story of Jesus changing the life of a blind man.
1: chapter 9 in our study Whom Do You Believe and that is really the focus of John's gospel. He is revealing Jesus Christ, Jesus came in the flesh and he's trying to reveal through these various stories and miracles and teaching that Jesus is the son of God, that he is God himself. Let's uh, read down through this account just so we can kind of see what's happening. Uh, in this story, beginning in John chapter nine. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. "'He replied, "'The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. "'He told me to go to Siloam and wash. "'So I went and washed, and then I could see. "'Where is this man?' they asked him. "'I don't know,' he said. "'They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. "'Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. "'Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight.' He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled their insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind... You would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim, you can see, your guilt remains. They open the dialogue here, it's interesting, as Jesus is walking along, and it's an important point, the fact that Jesus, just in his walking along, shows his heart uh, for people. But in doing this, um, actually I need to get my thing here. His concern for people is the first thing here. Now it's interesting, they ask him a question, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they had the assumption that if something bad has happened to an individual, or there's a deformity in the person's life, that somehow it's traced back to sin. That either this man sinned, and it's interesting because if he was born blind, he would have had to sin in an earlier life. So I don't know if they believed in reincarnation or what. Because he was born blind, how could he have sinned before birth? But anyhow, that would be one thing. The other thing was his parents sinning. So they made a false theological assumption. And sometimes I have heard Christians do the same thing. When they see somebody who has a deformity or a parent who has a child who has a disability, they say, I wonder what they did wrong. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. If we look at the accounts in the Bible... Job was a righteous man. He feared God. He shunned evil. And he was an upright man. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? And to bring those all afflictions on him where he lost his sheep, his cattle, his servants, and his children, it wasn't because of sin. It was to display the power of God in his life. And here he says the reason this was done is that the work of God might be displayed in his life. There are other examples in Scripture as well. We can think of Daniel who was cast in the lion's den. Was he cast in the lion's den because he was a sinner? Not hardly, because of his faith in God. That's why he was cast in prison. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh, not because of his sin. God gave it to him to keep him humble, but it wasn't his sin. And so there are many examples in Scripture of that. So it's not always traced back to sin. And sometimes when we go through a barrage of things that are going wrong or things that are broken in our house, like, what did I do wrong? Well, maybe nothing. Uh, It could just be God testing you and wanting to shine through you. And we also, a modern-day example would be the Muslims who are being uh, forcing executions on Christians in Iraq and Syria. Is it because of the sin of the Iraqi and Syrian people Probably not. It's the fact of their faith and their testimony for God. And so right at the outset, we have to understand that theologically. Please understand that. Don't have a warped theology. We have to base it on the Word of God. But even if we did a superficial reading of the New Testament, it would be absolutely impossible for somebody to just superficially read through any gospel and not come out with the idea that Jesus has a concern for people. I mean, everywhere he went, he was healing people, touching people, talking to people, interacting with people. We saw that in John 3 when he met with Nicodemus. We saw that in John 4 with the woman at the well. We saw that when he fed the 5,000. We saw that when the disciples were in the boat and the storm came up and Jesus walked on the water to go to them. All throughout Scripture, we see the concern of Jesus for people. And so you know what? We need to have the heart of Jesus We need to have a concern for people. We need to be concerned about their spiritual destiny. Jesus was all about touching people. The next thing we see here is Jesus sees the reality of my situation. You see, other people may not know how difficult you really have it. But I can tell you one that does. And not only does he know, he sees it all. He sees every tear, he hears every heartache, he understands every burden, every stress that you have. God sees it all, the reality of my situation. and reminded me of a good news, bad news story that I have to share with you. It involves the captain of a slave galley. The captain comes to the slaves one morning and tells them to put down your oars. Then he says, gentlemen, I have some news for you. Some of it is good, some of it is bad. I'm going to give you the good news first. He said, tomorrow we're going to dock at Caesarea, and you will all be getting shore leave. You will be able to do whatever you want, and there'll be plenty of parties, and you'll have a lot of fun and live it up. Now the bad news. Today, the admiral wants to go water skiing. (laughs) Let that sink in, people. Come on, there's no motor on the boat. All right, when you have to explain it, it ruins it. Anyhow. I really cracked up when I read that. Here is not good news, bad news. Here is bad news that becomes good news. The bad news is this man is blind physically, but the worst news is he's blind spiritually. He has no ability to understand and comprehend who Jesus is. This man knew he had a problem, but he had no idea how to fix his problem. As far as he knew, there was no solution to his problem because you see in their day, oftentimes they felt like it was, uh, Aristotle even said that blindness would indicate a heredity disease in that part of the world. And in all cases though, blindness was presumed to be incurable. So here is a man with an incurable disease Unable to help himself or do anything. Totally dependent. In fact, it says, "If look in verse 8. Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? He was poor. He had no ability to provide for himself, and his only means of survival is somebody else to give something to him. That's the position that Jesus wants us to be in, to realize we need the grace of God. That we realize that we are lost, that we are destitute, that we are spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus Christ. We are spiritually blind. This morning, if you are here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and I don't care how many sermons you've heard, how many Bible studies you've been in, it doesn't necessarily mean you know Christ. There was a man preaching one time from the Word of God, and he was a pastor, and he was up preaching the Word of God, and he was actually converted while he was bringing the message. The grace of God broke in upon his heart, and he finally understood it for the first time, and he gave his life to Christ in the middle of his sermon. So it's, it's that kind of thing. And he tells us here in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The blindness is there. Comedian Jay Leno conducted a man-on-the-street interview asking random people to name one of the Ten Commandments. The most common response was something not even on the list. What do you think it was? Here's what it was. God helps those who help themselves. My friend, that's not even in the Bible. And that's what they were quoting as a Ten Commandment to show the ignorance, spiritual ignorance and blindness. And let me even show you from the Quran the blindness of Islam. Here's from Quran chapter 13, verse 11. Indeed, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. In other words, he's trying to say people got to change themselves before Allah will do something. Of course, Allah is not going to do anything anyhow because he's dead. But the point is, he's believing that they're going to do something for themselves first. And we have to realize we're destitute without Christ. The second thing is a call to obedience. A call to obedience. And that Jesus cares about the reality of my situation. Here this man was blind, he was destitute, he was unable to help himself. Jesus not only saw his situation... Jesus cared about the reality of his situation. And this reminds me of 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And I want to share with you the words of an old hymn that ought to speak to each one of us and remind us of God's care. Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary? and long and the answer is in the chorus so yes he cares I know he cares his heart is touched with my grief when the days are weary the long nights dreary I know my Savior cares I don't know how anybody could possibly read John chapter 9 and not walk away with understanding the heart of Jesus Christ for people and their deep need of him it's so vital and let me share with you another verse that's here. Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? All we got to do is open the psalmist and look at the words of the psalmist and how he drenched his couch or his bed with tears, and yet God saw every one of them. Jesus cares. I don't know what burden, I don't know what stress, I don't know what pressure. I don't know what concern is weighing on your mind today. If it's your sin, there's a remedy for it in the cross of Jesus Christ. If it is some other burden, God has made access to his throne to come boldly to his throne that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. He's there for us. How is Jesus' care demonstrated? It is demonstrated in the revelation of his will. And we see that in this text. We see the revelation of God's will in this text. Notice what he says. He makes spit, in verse 6, on the ground, which, of course, was on the Sabbath day. And if you spit on the ground on the Sabbath day and you made a hole, they considered you were working because you made a ditch, as it were. So he does that. He makes the mud and the saliva. He puts it on the man's eyes. And what's he say? Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus reveals his care because he gives an answer in his will for this man to be able to see. And the goal is for this man to go and do what Jesus told him to do. And so God's will, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The call to obey is clear. Go wash in the pool of of Siloam. It is a simple command and it is clear. It is not hard to understand and it is within the man's ability to carry out the instruction. He will probably need some assistance getting there but he's probably used to navigating his way around town anyhow from being blind. Now sometimes we have to go through things before the command is clear. Um, And I know this has been true in my own life. I remember being back in sixth grade and Uh, The teacher had a problem with us talking in class, and so she had this strict rule, you weren't allowed to talk in class. And somehow, this guy asked me for a piece of paper or something, and I talked to him and got him a piece of paper to help whatever class he was in. At least that's the way I remember it. But anyhow, I talked. And so she came in the room and was like, anybody that's talked, get out in the hallway. And um, I didn't go out because I didn't consider myself to have talked, but somebody else snitched on me and said, Roy, Roy talked. So Roy went out in the hallway with the other 12 students. And i got to tell you, this teacher was so mean in sixth grade. She paddled everyone at least one time. Every student. And if you had straight A's going in that class, you didn't have them coming out. I mean, she was just a tough teacher. But anyhow, needless to say, needless to say, that day, the Board of Education was applied to the seat of knowledge. And after that, the call to obey was clear. (laughs) Um, Sometimes we have to go through things like that. Is that not true? God takes us through something, and then all of a sudden it becomes a little more clear the next time. God, I got you this time. I got it. It's clear. Um, But the call to obey here is clear. Secondly, the call to obey is concise. Its message is given in just seven words. It's not like, Do these 50 things over the next five years and then we'll stop and evaluate and see if you're ready to do this. No, it wasn't that at all. He didn't have to evaluate, didn't have to take five years to figure out whether or not he should do this or not. And it was very, very clear. However, Jesus does not even, I want us to notice this, he does not even address the man's spiritual need yet at this point. Still, the man has a spiritual need to need Jesus Christ, but what has he done? He's ministered to the physical need first. And sometimes we need to, to do that. You so the call to obey was concise. You know, he could have said, you know what? I don't, I don't mind washing, but I don't really want to go to that pool, and I really don't want to go right now, and I really don't want to be around those people. And he could have made all kinds of excuses because that's what people do. They make excuses. Well, Jesus says to do this, but... And we make an excuse. And God just simply wants us to obey. Third thing here is the call to obey often runs counter to my flesh. My flesh wants to do something else, and God wants me to do this. And so it runs counter to my flesh. Paul says it well in Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And that happens to me on the golf course all the time. The very thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing. This is my golf life verse. But what about in life? The things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we should do, we don't. And it runs counter with our flesh. But look at the blind man's obedience. So the man went and washed. Very simply, he obeyed God. And what was the result? The power of God was experienced. He came home seeing. Maybe the reason that we don't experience more of the power of God in our lives, and I'll say this for me as well, is that we have not fully obeyed everything God wants us to do. And partial obedience is disobedience. God wants full obedience complete obedience of our lives. Well, God, you know what? I would give more money to the church if I didn't have... Yet God talks about tithing in the Bible, about giving 10% of our income. And if we're not giving 10% of our income, are we being obedient to God? You answer that question. God makes it clear. And other things that we should be doing in our lives to obey Him and honor Him. Maybe He wants you to witness to your neighbor. But you are fearful. It's okay to be fearful, but obey God. Talk to your neighbor. Talk to your coworker. Whatever it is he wants you to do, we should do. Thirdly, confession of truth. The Pharisees utilized four different angles in an effort to write off this miracle. Four different things they did to try to write off this miracle. Let me share them with you quickly. Number one, to deny the miracle happened. They said, oh, you're not the man that was sitting out there begging. You just look like him. You're not the man. So you're not really healed because that's not who you are. And so they wanted to deny the miracle. Now, in the 19th century, there was a group of people who were secularly educated called rationalists. And what the rationalists began to teach about the Bible was that there were no supernatural events that actually happened in history. They're only stories. They only looked like they were things that actually happened. And therefore, they had a problem with that. In other words, Jesus didn't really walk on the water. What it was was Jesus was actually standing in shallow water, and the disciples just thought he was further from the shore than he was, and it was dark and cloudy, and they really couldn't see, and Jesus only appeared to walk on the water. That's what the rationalists said, and did away with the miracle. And then they said, Jesus didn't really feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It only looked like he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. What really happened was the disciples had foresight enough to know that there was going to be a great gathering of people and Jesus was going to need a lot of food. So they stashed some away in a cave nearby. And then when it was time, they snuck it out and gave it to Jesus secretly, and he distributed it. And it looked like he fed five thousand people with five loaves to fish. Now you tell me, how are they going to keep fish from in a cave? I mean, give me a break. Um, but this is what the rationalists taught, and the Pharisees were no different. It was like, no, this didn't really happen, and they wanted to deny the miracle. Well, when they really came to the point where they realized they couldn't deny the miracle anymore, they said, you know, Jesus really did heal this man, or at least the the man really could see. Here's the next thing they did. They denied that Jesus performed the miracle. See, they said, well, we'll concede the fact that this man can now see, but you know what? It wasn't because of him, because he's a sinner. (laughs) Remember what they said? Give glory to God. This man is a sinner. This man couldn't have done it. He's a sinner. But he did. And see, they were trying to strip Jesus of his deity and his power. And that's exactly what people in the world do when they are blinded by sin, is they start denying the Bible, the supernatural power of God, and then they deny Jesus having supernatural ability. So then you're stripped with no Christ and no Bible. That's what we're reduced to if we follow the rationalistic thinking of man. Thirdly, debunk the miracle by tradition. They said, we don't know how this miracle happened or what part Jesus played in it, but we do know that God spoke to Moses and that's all we need to know. Let's just follow our tradition. You're a disciple of Jesus. We're disciples of Moses. We're just going to follow our tradition. And so therefore, they were debunking the miracle by their tradition. We're following uh, Moses. God spoke to Moses. In reality, however... Their traditions and following the teaching of Moses should have caused them to begin to look for the Messiah and say, there he is. There's the one he was pointing to. There's the one the prophets were talking about, and it should have pointed them to Jesus. Fourthly, dismiss the man who was healed. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us, and what did they do? They threw him out. Don't think that everybody's going to receive your testimony and the message of Jesus and just embrace you with open arms, because they're not. There's persecution. And we're learning more and more about persecution in our world with Iraq and Syria, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that day may be fast coming to this country. And we need to realize that. We need to take a stand for Jesus Christ. There was a young man a number of years ago during the First World War, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a pastor a number of years ago, had the opportunity of leading this, the son of a prominent American family to the Lord. When this young man professed to accept Christ as his personal Savior, he immediately made public testimony to this fact among the soldiers of his company. In, the war, in time, the war ended, and the day came when he was to return to his pre-war life in the wealthy suburb of a large city. He went and he spoke to Barnhouse about it, and he shared his fears that he might soon slip into his bad habits and back in with his old friends. Barnhouse told him that he would not have to give these people up. He said, if you confess Christ freely, they will give you up. (laughs) And as a result of the conversation, this young man agreed to tell the first 10 people of his old set when he met them that he had become a Christian. The soldier left his unity, went home, and almost immediately, in fact, while he was still at the suburban station at the end of his return trip, he met a girl whom he had known. He told her, the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me has happened. Oh, she exclaimed, you're engaged to be married. No, he told her, it's even greater than that. "'I have taken Jesus Christ as my Savior.'" The girl's expression froze. She mumbled a few polite words and then walked away. A short time later, the new Christian met a young man whom he had known. The young man informed him there would be some good parties now that the soldier had returned. "'I've just become a Christian,' the soldier said again. Again, it was a case of frozen smiles and a quick change of conversation." After this, the same circumstances were repeated with a young couple and two more old friends. By the time the word had gotten around, the friends stopped seeing him. The man's conduct here, when Jesus healed him, was a sharp contrast to that of his parents. What did his parents say? They were afraid of being thrown out, and so they were very, very cautious. Said, Ask him, he's of age. We don't want to say, we know he's been healed, but we're not sure how it happened, and when they really did know how it happened. And so I think there's three things we can take with us from this man that we should take with us in our own lives. In confession of the truth, observation number one is his candor. His candor. We see his incredible candor. When you and I experience the power of God, we're not afraid and ashamed to speak about it. We shouldn't be. And if we are living in line with the truth, we shouldn't be afraid to proclaim the truth to people and tell them the truth. And that's what this man did. Before an individual can come to an understanding of their need of God, God has to give them spiritual sight of who he is. This man had yet not received spiritual sight, but yet he was still not ashamed to tell him. What happened to him? His candor. Secondly, his courage. Whenever we're exposed to the person of God, we cannot remain neutral. We can't be fence-sitters. We can't sit on the fence and say, well, I'm not sure. This day I'm a Christian. This day I'm a pagan. Another day I'm a Christian. Another day I'm a pagan. We get off the fence, and we choose to live for Jesus Christ. This man was not a fence-sitter. This man told them clearly, and after he told them they wanted to hear it again, he says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple? I mean, I've already told you, and his testimony was there, and it was clear, and he had courage in how he brought that. There was no shame. Augustine was once accosted by a heathen who showed him his idol, and he said, here is my God, where is yours, to Augustine. Augustine replied, I cannot show you my God, not because there is no God to show you, but because you have no eyes to see him. He recognized the spiritual blindness of people. Thirdly, his consistency. He consistently gave the same answer each time about his healing. When we genuinely have something happen in our life, we don't have to worry about, am I repeating it the same way? We just share the truth. With people. The message doesn't change. And then, fourthly, look what happened to him his commitment to follow. Jesus then comes to him and he finds him after he's kicked out. And Jesus said to him in verse 35 Do you believe in the Son of Man? Believe in the Son of Man. And what does he say? Who is he, sir? Because I don't know him yet. And he even said earlier, he said, the man called Jesus, I don't know who this man is, he's a man called Jesus, he's a sir, but I don't really know who he is yet. He says, tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus says, you have now seen him, in fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. See, when we truly believe to be firmly persuaded as to something to have faith in, to trust, When we put our whole life in to God and we believe, we'll stand up to anything. And this man was willing to do that. The first step toward belief in Jesus is to acknowledge our blindness. God, I'm blind I'm spiritually blind. If you read the scripture and it doesn't make sense to you, you don't understand it, it's because you are spiritually blind. And the first prayer you need to pray is, God, give me spiritual sight. God, give me the ability to comprehend this book because naturally I cannot and you cannot comprehend this book. And when I come to believe it and understand it, it doesn't matter if my wife is around. It doesn't matter if my kids are around. It doesn't matter who's around, if a deacon or elder is around. I choose to follow Jesus wherever I am. I remember when I was a single and I went with a guy to Myrtle Beach one time and, and he was like, hey, I want to go to this movie. And I, I, I looked at the title and what the movie is. I said, you go ahead and go. I'm not going. And I thought he, I think he was thinking because Roy is not at home, with family, and he's away from all his friends, he'll behave differently. No, I'm not going to that movie. It's not honoring to God. And I didn't go. It's following the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging our blindness, asking God to reveal truth to us, and accepting the word of God as the word of God. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. And the second aspect of this is worship. When I truly believe, I'm driven to worship. I have to be. My heart is here. My heart is with the people of God. I want to worship God. I do not want something else to take priority over my worship. Because then that's beginning to be what I worship. And I see a lot of Christians beginning to compromise worship. I'm not talking about vacation and all that stuff, and you've got to be here 52 weeks out of 50. I'm not even here 52 weeks out of 50. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the general tenor and tone of your life that it's worship to give to God. Worship comes from these two words, prosto and kaneo, to kiss or adore. To worship, to show respect, to fall or prostrate before, literally to kiss towards someone, to throw a kiss in the token of respect. Now here's how it works. Whenever someone of equal rank would meet, they would kiss on the lips because they were of equal rank. If someone was a little superior to the other person, then they would kiss on the cheek. But if someone was far superior and the other one was far inferior to that person, like God and us, the person would get down on his knees and he would bow and touch his forehead to the ground and throw kisses toward that person. That's worship. That's what God deserves from every one of us when we realize what God has done in our lives, that he has stripped us of our blindness, that he has delivered us from the bondage and the power of sin, that we have spiritual sight and belief. We should be driven to worship. And because of that worship, I witness to people and I share my faith with people and I pray for opportunities. Every week, every day, I pray for people who are spiritually blind, that they might come to the truth. Let's stand for a word of prayer. I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to think about where you are this morning. First of all, do you have spiritual sight And by the way, if you do, then the belief and the worship come. I mean, you have it. You have a heart for God. You want to be with God's people. You want to be in God's house. You want other people to come to know Jesus Christ. If that is not the passion and heartbeat of your heart, you better take a spiritual inventory. And I would challenge you to pray for spiritual sight you might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That is your greatest need today, and Jesus is concerned for you. For those of us who are believers, which would be the vast majority, what about the spiritual sight we've been given and the belief that we say that we have, does it translate into worship, where we worship God? We humble ourselves before him and we are driven with a passion to share him with others. Oh, may God help us do that. If you have a spiritual need in your life and you need myself or one of our other leaders to pray with you, would you see me after church? I'll be greeting people at the back. I'd be glad to share with you. If you have questions, concerns, a prayer need, uh, please share with us. and We'll be glad to pray with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. Lord, may it never grow old. May we be inspired as we look at the life of Jesus Christ and we see his incredible concern for people. Lord, some of us have known people for a long time that may be lost, but we've never taken the opportunity to sit down with them and to share our concern for their eternal destiny. And Lord, maybe some of us has allowed other things to creep in so that worship is not the priority of our life. Lord, I pray that today we would recommit ourselves to that. We would recommit ourselves to the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and it may be the one across the street or next door. God, we pray for opportunities and we pray that we would see the opportunities that are already presented to us to be able to share. I thank you for the work of Freedom Works. Lord, I thank you for the spiritual sight that you gave to these guys, some of them in prison. They heard the gospel and they were in a prison of sin. And you delivered them, just like you delivered us. And it's only because of your amazing grace that any of us deserve your favor. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. Help us to live it out in our lives, to honor you and to serve you with everything we have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great Lord's Day.